I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, Americans love to celebrate those who achieve success based solely on their own merit. But do luck and wealth also play a role? It's hard to summon the sense of solidarity and mutual uh, responsibility for one another that we would have if we had a keener sense of the role of luck in success and also the sense of indebtedness to family and teachers and neighborhood and community and country and the times in which we live. Then have colleges and universities adapted their business models to level the playing fields or does wealth still determine whether you go to a four-year college? The mission of higher education now has to shift to both promote human flourishing and to get people jobs. And it, it just simply doesn't do that, which is why the majority of people who graduate with college degrees end up saying they wish they had it to do over again. The ideals and myths of meritocracy, all ahead on Life Examined. There aren't a lot of household name philosophers or living philosophers these days, but Michael Sandel might be one of those. He's taught at Harvard for years and has written about some big questions concerning money, politics, and the common good. His latest book hits on something massive right now in American culture. He says that merit-based success has long been celebrated in America. The results most say of hard work and dedication. Those who achieve success typically enjoy the rewards, a better income, praise, and recognition. But less talked about is the role of luck, timing, and class. How do we reckon with a meritocratic society that is actually heavily stacked against those who are less fortunate? In his latest book, The Tyranny of Merit, Sandel questions the concept of merit and how we value human excellence, and how the pandemic may provide an opportunity to reevaluate the dignity of essential workers. Well, Michael Sandel, thanks for joining us on Life Examined. We appreciate the time. Good to be with you, Jonathan. Well, I'd love to just jump in here, and if you could explain the origins of the word meritocracy and, and how it was thought to be the great equalizer. It's such a fascinating idea. You're right. We do think of meritocracy as an ideal, an ideal of a just society. The idea that if chances could only be made equal, then people would advance based on merit. Everyone would be able to rise as far as their talents and efforts would take them, as the slogan goes. But despite its inspiring sound, it was actually coined in the late 1950s as a pejorative, as a warning. It was coined by a British sociologist, Michael Young. The Rise of the Meritocracy was a short book he wrote. And this was at a time when the class system in Britain was breaking down in the years after the Second World War. And more and more, it was thought that it would be possible to level the playing field and people would no longer be tied to the class of their birth. That was a good thing he recognized, but he also glimpsed a dark side. He he saw meritocracy actually as a dystopia because he predicted that eventually in a society where everyone's place uh, and economic rewards matched their merit, that the winners would consider that they had earned their place, that they deserved it. And that the losers, those who struggled, would be demoralized knowing they had had every chance and come up short. Mm. So he thought this was a recipe for social discord. And sure enough, he glimpsed something that actually has unfolded in our time. Because if we look, if we look at the last few decades, we, we see that the divide between winners and losers has been deepening. It's been poisoning our politics, driving us apart, not only because of the widening inequality, that's bad enough, but also because of the attitudes towards success that have come with it. Those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, Mm -hmm. a measure of their merit, and by implication that those who fall short must have no one to blame themselves. And this, I think, has contributed to the, to the anger, the resentment, the sense of grievance that we've seen in this country that feeds the polarization and that, that had a lot to do with the populist backlash right. against meritocratic elites. 
And if we think about the word meritocracy and specifically merit, I think it's important for us to establish what what merit is in America. I mean, is it this notion that if one simply works hard enough, they'll get there, or if one is talented enough, they'll get to this higher place, or is it if they attain a certain status of education? I mean, how do we understand that in this American framework? Well, the main principle is that if chances are truly equal, if there is a level playing field, then the winners can be thought to deserve their winnings because they will have earned them. Right. They will have earned them, and you raise a, an interesting point, they, they earn them through some combination of effort and talent. Mm. But no one is held back. Everyone is able to exercise his or her efforts and talents and earn their place. That's the idea of meritocracy. And it's closely connected to the idea of education and credentials, because as it's been worked out in recent decades, the way we've dealt with the widening inequality brought about by globalization has been to tell people, or rather the politicians have, have told us, if you want to compete and win in the global economy, go to college. Mm. What you earn will depend on what you learn. So the idea of getting a college degree, credentialism, has in practice been a part of the meritocratic promise or offer that has been right at the center of our politics in recent decades. And I want to get to education in just a moment, because I know this is such an important part of what you're writing about. But if we stay with the theory for a second, I, I know you were influenced in this book by someone called R.H. Taney. Who was he and why is he so important in this conversation? R.H. Taney was a British social democrat uh, writing in the 1930s. He wrote about the inequality of condition that he thought was a necessary supplement to equality of opportunity. Often when we have debates about equality, well, for the most part in this country, we talk about equality of opportunity, mm. a chance, not a result, but a chance to compete fairly, not to have anyone held back by disadvantage or class or racial or ethnic prejudice. That's the idea. But Tony wrote, and I think he was right, that even if we could achieve a perfect equality of opportunity, we would still fall short of a just society. And he argued for something I also argue for in the book, which is not a, a kind of equality of result, which some people think is the only alternative to equal opportunity. Mm. Uh, insisting that everyone has the same income and wealth, but something something else, uh, a broad democratic equality of condition, which means that everyone has an opportunity to have access to education, to learning, and every, and that there is a broad equality of esteem where as democratic citizens, we can look one another in the eye and feel that we are engaged in a common life with mutual obligations for one another. I think that's, that's the more, more generous ideal that equality of opportunity and a, and a single-minded focus on individual upward mobility uh, misses, falls short of. Mm. So... If, if we bring this back to this notion of credentialism, which is, which is, I think, fundamental to this conversation and this idea that to succeed in this world now, you need, you need a college degree, if not more than that, to compete as you talk about in this new global economy where so many of the kind of traditional middle class, lower middle class jobs have exited the U.S. and gone to other countries. So, so credentialism becomes so important. What I gather from what you're saying, though, is that the playing fields to get those credentials is not level. Is that right? That's right. And we it, it's pretty obvious that affluent parents have figured out how in a meritocratic society to pass their 
privileges onto their kids. It's by equipping their children with the competitive advantages in the scramble for access to colleges and universities, especially those who aspire to highly selective colleges and universities. If we look at the Ivy League universities plus Stanford, University of Chicago, Duke, these places that are are quite hard to get into, the number of students on these campuses who come from the top 1% of families is greater than the number who come from the bottom half of the country put together. Mm. So it's clear that access to higher education and especially to highly competitive colleges and universities is far from from equal. It tracks class to, to quite a degree. So part of the problem is that we fall short we, we don't live up to the meritocratic principles we proclaim. That's part of the problem. But in, in my book, The Tyranny of Merit, I argue that even if we did live, live up to the ideal, the ideal itself is flawed. And, and it's flawed because it has a dark side, the dark side um, that was glimpsed by Michael Young, which is that a meritocracy, even a perfect meritocracy, would be corrosive of the common good, the sense in which we are all in this together. Mm -hmm. I think what we end up having now, Michael, is even, even though we like to think, or the universities like to think of themselves as just institutions, we end up with almost two classes, it seems. One is the educated class, and one is the undereducated class, which has created an incredible amount of tension in America. I think it has created a lot of tension, and we see this in our politics. The educational divide is one of the deepest divides in our politics. In 2016, if we look at white voters without a college degree, Donald Trump won two-thirds of them. This was in 2016. In 2020, in the last election, even after everything that happened, over the past four years, and even though his policies did little to help working people, the percentage of of white, non-college educated voters who went for Donald Trump, two thirds, Mm -hmm. almost exactly what it was four years ago. I think that when, when liberals and progressives and Democrats have been offering what I call the rhetoric of rising, the promise that if you get a college education, then maybe you too will be able to rise out of inequality and wage stagnation. I think what this rhetoric and this political project misses in in dealing with inequality is that it forgets that most Americans do not have a four-year college degree. Nearly two-thirds don't. Same is true in Britain and most European countries. So it's folly to create an economy that makes the dignity uh, of, of work and, and a decent life depend on having a four-year degree that most people don't have. It's a recipe for, for frustration, for resentment, for anger, and the sense of grievance that Donald Trump tapped into. Mm. W- one big question I have kind of sitting in my mind as I listen to you talk then, I mean, is... Do you think that America was founded on a kind of false philosophy or one that would not come out to bear? This notion that the immigrant can arrive and has the same shot as anybody else to reach the top, that 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 guiding system is one that was kind of doomed to fail as we've now fallen into a kind of uh, classist system? I don't think it was doomed to fail. And I don't think that the American dream as such consists only of individual upward mobility through college education. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. That helps some people. But I think we've come, especially in the last four decades, to see that individual upward mobility through college education is not by itself an adequate response to the growing inequality and wage stagnation that the market-driven version of globalization 
of recent decades has brought about. We need to take on the, in, those inequalities directly, not only as economic inequalities, but the, the other part of the inequality, and this connects to the attitudes towards success, yeah. um, is the tendency for the credentialed elite to, to look down on those less fortunate than themselves. Part of the meritocratic hubris brought about by a meritocratic society is the tendency to inhale too deeply of our own uh, success, right. to, f to forget the luck and good fortune that helped us on our way. And without, without being alive to the role of luck in life, especially in, in enabling some to succeed, it's hard to see ourselves in other people's shoes. It's, it's hard to summon the sense of solidarity and mutual uh, responsibility for one another that we would have if we had a keener sense of the role of luck in success and also the sense of indebtedness to family and teachers and neighborhood and community and country and the times in which we live. So, so I think we need really a shift in, in, in these attitudes, these values, mm -hmm. this ethic, in addition to uh, confronting the inequalities of income and wealth as such. And I, I really want to pay attention to this notion of the, this looking down upon those who don't have college educations. This is not, you wrote, you know, recently that, that college educated respondents had more bias against less educated people than they did against other disfavored groups. And no. I think this is something that a lot of liberals and highly educated people would say, you're wrong, you're wrong, but maybe there's there's something going on that's real there that's important to talk about. Right. We can sense it intuitively if we listen to the way people speak in politics on the various uh, cable television shouting matches and so on. But some social psychologists have actually studied this and done surveys of college-educated people in the U.S., in Britain, and in several European countries. And they gave the respondents a list of disfavored groups, groups traditionally discriminated against, including immigrants, including African-Americans, including those who may be obese, people who are blind, who have various disabilities, all sorts of groups that suffer unjust discrimination. And on the list, they included the less well-educated. And it turns out that well-educated, uh, college-educated respondents to these surveys rank the less well-educated at the bottom. They like them the least. It's almost as if, even, even though we've not banished other forms of prejudice, at least there's a general recognition that we should be embarrassed about it. Whereas credentialism, in a way, is the last acceptable prejudice, the tendency to look down on those who haven't been to college. And it shows up in our politics, and it helps explain, I think, the sense of many working people that college-educated elites, professional elites, meritocratic elites, look down on them don't really respect the kind of the the kind of work they do the contributions they make and what i think is so though interesting and difficult even for someone like myself to understand is that we are when we think about though say leadership in this country um we like to say something that don't we want the most highly educated people to be the leaders those that are making the decisions and at the same time, I know that this is something you've thought about and may not agree with. Well, it's, it's an interesting question, Jonathan. In general, we would think that we want to be governed by those who are best equipped to govern. That's certainly true. And it's an easy slide into the further assumption that must be those who've been to a good college or university and maybe even more than that. But I think it's a mistake to assume that those with uh, fancy degrees or lustrous credentials are necessarily better 
at democratic governance and leadership. Mm. It assumes, and I think we've fallen into this assumption, especially in the age of you know, market faith, we've assumed that technocratic expertise is the virtue most necessary to governing. This is the idea of the best and the brightest. Right. But what this forgets is that in a democratic society, leadership also requires, and effective governance requires, the ability to identify with people from all walks of life and to care about the common good. It also depends on having good practical judgment, historically informed practical judgment, um, not just technocratic expertise. And if we actually look at the record of technocratic experts at governing in recent decades, it isn't that good. They haven't done a very good job. I mean, the, the, you remember David Halberstam wrote this book, The Best and the Brightest, mm. about the, the, the highly credentialed technocrats uh, who worked for John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and led us into the fall of Vietnam, of Vietnam for all their brilliance. That was the irony in Halberstam's title, The Best and the Brightest. They brought us Vietnam. And in more recent years, they brought us the uh, deregulation of the financial industry. They brought us rising inequality. They brought us the financial crash of 2008. They brought us a, a, a bailout after the financial crisis that didn't really solve the problem of too big to fail and didn't help ordinary homeowners who had, who had lost their homes brought us wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, in the second case, it's still going on. So uh, to say nothing of crumbling infrastructure and, and uh, money dominating politics. Uh, so I, I think it's hard to say that as a practical matter, if we look at the record of the age of meritocracy and credentialism, that technocratic elites have governed very well. In the meantime, What's happened without our realizing it is that uh, Congress, the Senate, and state legislatures in the United States are almost entirely dominated by people with college degrees, which on the face of it, you might say is a good thing. But if you think about it from another direction, how representative is it? Why should it be if two-thirds of the country lack a four-year university diploma, why should they effectively be excluded from representative government? In fact, the percentage of people in Congress with working class backgrounds of any kind before they entered Congress is about 2%. And even if you look at state legislatures, it's 3%. Well, what kind of representative government is it and it, it might be, we might put up with that if we thought, well, they're doing a splendid job, but can we really look at the terms of public discourse and the actual political condition that we find ourselves in and say they've done a marvelous job of governing? I don't think so. And, and I wonder if we've gotten maybe just a little glimpse of this during the pandemic, strangely enough. Yeah. In, in this moment, suddenly the investment bank banker had to be deeply grateful for the grocery store clerk or the person that was just carrying out essential duties around us that we perhaps had said were not as worthy as we might have thought they were. Yes. And I, I think you're exactly right. This moment of pandemic, this crisis, could be a moment for rethinking for exactly the reason you suggest. Those of us with the luxury of being able to work from home and, and of holding meetings on Zoom, we can't help but notice how deeply we depend on workers we often overlook, the delivery workers, warehouse workers, as you mentioned, grocery store clerks, home health care providers, truckers. These are not the best paid or most honored workers in our society, and yet now we call them essential workers, and we applaud them, and we appreciate them. The question is whether this moment of recognition will persist once the pandemic recedes or, or whether we'll go back to business as usual. And that, I think, is an open question. It's very much up to us. 
But this could be a moment for a broader debate about how to bring the pay and recognition of the people we now call essential workers into better alignment with the importance of the work they do. It could be a moment to launch a new, broader, more generous politics of the common good focusing on the dignity of work and what it would take to renew it. And I feel like this needs to happen on a very deep philosophic level at the level of the family, at the level of the parents and the child. And I wonder how you would advise bringing this kind of a conversation to a parent and this shift in values that we're talking about and, and, and advice that you might have for them. I think that parents can, in very concrete ways, convey to our children that however much we encourage them to work hard, to be conscientious, to expend effort, to apply themselves in their studies, we also want them to interpret whatever success they have, but also whatever setbacks they have, with an appreciation for the contingency in life, rather than coming to believe that their success is their own doing, that their failure is their fault. I mean, here's a concrete illustration. Take a sports figure. Take, take a great basketball player, LeBron James. Now, he practices very hard. He tries hard. And yet, his enormous success and the rewards he reaps are not due to effort alone. They're due in large part to the remarkable athletic gifts he has. But, we could ask our kids, is that his doing that he is so gifted, has such athletic talent? Or is that, in large part, his good luck? And what about the fact that LeBron lives in a society that loves basketball and heaps enormous rewards on great basketball players? Is that his doing? Or is that also his good luck? If if LeBron had lived back in the days of the Renaissance, they weren't all that interested in basketball back then. So he could be just as gifted, but he wouldn't reap the enormous rewards he does in our society. They, they cared more about fresco painters back mm -hmm. then. So through examples, through moral teaching, through helping our, our children uh, interpret their own success, and negotiate their own setbacks and failures, I think we can go a long way toward having them grow up with a sense of, of uh, their good fortune when they succeed, the role of contingency, whether they succeed or whether they struggle in this or that endeavor. And from this can come a certain humility I think that humility is a civic virtue in very short supply these days. Mm. But it can be the beginning of the way back, if we can summon it, from the harsh ethic of success that drives us apart. So teaching our children a certain humility in the face of their success or an appreciation of the role of contingency in life when they may fail in a task, I think can be a a healthy way of trying to shift the, the harsh attitudes towards success that have brought us the tyranny of merit and the polarization that is pulling our society apart. Michael Sandel is a professor at Harvard University and the author of The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good. Thank you so much for the conversation today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. My pleasure. Still to come, the myth of merit-based education. Do America's colleges and universities favor the rich and divide the country? Our next guest says that higher education institutions, quote, cannot afford to be equitable. Join us after this short break. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Professor Michael Sandel explain how the ideal of meritocracy is closely linked to education and the obtaining of a credential. If you want to compete and win in the global economy, you need to go to college, where, as Sandel puts it, quote, what you earn will depend on what you learn. 
But is our belief in education, education, education misplaced? Does a college degree further divide Americans into the haves and have-nots? And is getting into college less about merit and more about wealth? Joining me now is Anthony Carnavale, director of the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce, and co-author of The Merit Myth, How Our Colleges Favor the Rich and Divide America. Well, Anthony Carnavale, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me. Well, let's jump into what is happening right now with uh, with American universities. You've written so much about meritocracy, how and about how these universities favor the wealthy so much. And so, when we look at this, um, do you think that the American university system, for this reason and a number of others, is going through a bit of an existential crisis in terms of what it says it provides and what it really does? What are your thoughts? Well. Colleges and universities really didn't matter much until after about 1985 in economic terms. Mm. That is, in the 70s, uh, 65 to 70 percent of the good jobs were had with a high school degree or less. But then beginning in uh, actually 1983, after the 80-81 recession, we saw a profound shift in the economy such that now uh, only about 20% of good jobs, jobs that will get you maybe 55 grand in your early 30s, go to high school graduates, and virtually all of those go to males. So um, for a good 80% of of American uh, young people, if you don't get some college or post-secondary education or training after high school, you're not going anywhere uh, Mm -hmm. in the American economy. And that's Uh, Because of that, the American education system, especially higher education, has become the principal device, I would argue, that now ensures the intergenerational reproduction of race and class privilege. And that's a huge problem. Uh, It is uh, an institutional problem and one that's very difficult to uh, overcome, uh, in part because Americans believe Uh, in education. We're sort of educational fundamentalists here. Every time there's a problem in America, our answer is always education, education, education. Uh, But in this case, just to give you one statistic that does it for me, since 1983... Introducing the KCRW donation car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. When the earnings inequality began to spike in America, uh, 70% of the growth in that inequality is directly due to access to college and college graduation. Yeah, the numbers are are, are amazing and overwhelming. And yet I, I feel that, that perhaps it's more of a myth than a truth that comes out of the universities is that there has never been as much attention on diversity as there is now. Uh, speaking to you here from California and the University of California systems, it seems like that that continues to be the priority. And yet my sense is that you think it's not being done the right way or not enough. What are your thoughts on that? The, um, the driving force in American higher education, unless you're Harvard and you got so much money, you don't know what to do with it. Uh, but even at Harvard, they know what to do with it. They get uh, they do whatever they can to increase their number one standing in the college rankings. They don't try to help people who need it. Uh, we've got a higher education system that works like a hospital for healthy people. Uh, so there is a, um, the truth is that diversity in American higher education is declining, not growing. Uh, racial diversity is about where it's been for quite some time. Hmm. Uh, But even more disturbing is the fact that economic diversity is going nowhere. In 1993, if you looked at the top 500 colleges in America, about 5% of the kids there came from the bottom 25% of the family income distribution. Uh, That number's increased to seven, and that's it. Wow. You do things like dump the SAT like California did, 
Uh, I used to be the vice president of ETS, so I know about the SAT. Uh, it really doesn't change much. It's a very, it's a feel good kind of thing. But what really drives colleges is the business model. Uh, and so when you dump the SAT, it just allows you to let in more rich kids is what it really does. Mm. I know that um, some schools have been hit hard about the notion that it may appear that they're looking for diversity, but really it might just be cosmetic diversity. It's not actually looking for those that are coming from a place that really need the help, uh, those really at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah. If you're the president of an American college, uh, especially one that's at all selective, uh, the business strategy is very clear, uh, and that is you get as many full-paying students as you can. Uh, oftentimes, you use early admission to do that, and then uh, with about 50% of, of the uh, to 70% of the remaining class, you do the bargaining with uh, upper-middle-class fam families. Uh, that is, you distribute so-called merit aid, which has nothing to do with merit. Uh, so when the, the parents and the kids come to the campus, they end up in the admissions office and they try to cut a deal. So if you, you then try to get about 50, you give what's so-called merit aid or discounts uh, to 50, 60% of the people sometimes. Uh, and then you've got a few percent left over that you can actually, in terms of money, in order to meet your budget requirement for disadvantaged kids, good quarterbacks, um, and the disadvantaged kids come in last. I mean, it's just the truth is American higher education cannot afford to be equitable because of the business model. I think of the way that these universities market themselves with their glossy magazines, their brand new gym facilities. Um, and it's really become a pretty slick endeavor, hasn't it? It is a competition for like any other business. Uh, colleges sort of pose as churches, but they're really businesses, uh, as are churches in my estimation. But the, uh, yes, I mean, they don't uh, survive unless they can meet budget. And that is, uh, we're at an interesting moment in all that because COVID has revealed all that, that it's really clear who the winners and losers are in America. Uh, and in the end, uh, COVID is really just the first shoe to drop in what will probably be a decade of uncertainty in higher education. That is, uh, enrollment, the, the size of the college age population is declining, uh, and that is especially in the East and the Atlantic states and New England. Uh, south and West, uh, it's actually increasing, but um, in, in the South and West, it, those kids will come more and more from families whose parents didn't go to college and who traditionally don't go or don't complete. So um, there's going to be a real sorting in higher education. Now, uh, the elect selective colleges will be fine because the other thing that's happening in America is that we're becoming more unequal in family income. So mm. there's going to be a good 15% to 20% growth in families where both parents have a BA and a good solid checking account. So uh, the elite colleges don't have much to worry about, but the rest of the system is going to be starved. So l let's get into that a little bit. Why why was COVID the first kind of shoe to drop here? And, and also, why are we seeing this drop in the number of applications, the number of people wanting to go to college or at least applying? What's going on there? COVID uh, is accidental. Uh, uh, that is, it just happened to come in the first year when the numbers on the college age population have been dropping most and will drop most for the next 10. So I think one of the interesting things about this is we'll all be talking about pre-COVID and post-COVID in higher education for mm. decades to come. But the truth is COVID was just the, the first act. So yes, COVID is making it very difficult for the least advantaged kids, especially to go to college. Because remember, uh, the least advantaged kids have to work their way through college, even though the jobs they get can't possibly pay for college because it's so expensive now. But 
they have a double bind in the in the last recession, the Great Recession. Uh, for example, if you didn't want to come into the labor market and the jobs weren't there, the best thing you could do is find a safe haven on a college campus and build your human capital and enter the workforce when the recovery occurred and do even better. But now uh, there's no place to go to college and you can't get a job to even pay for part of it. So if you're a lower income person in America, uh, this is devastating. And we know that especially for millennials, oddly enough, they're between the ages of 28 and 38 now, uh, excuse me, 22 and 38 now. Uh, they've been whacked three times with this, first with the dot-com dot bust, uh, made the labor market unfriendly for them, and then the Great Recession, and now this. Uh, so they've taken three hits. Well, it's interesting, is, is you mentioned the notion that, that makes total sense, which is that COVID may prevent kids from going to college because the means are drying up, they simply can't afford it, they can't get there. I also, though, wonder at the same time about this conversation I hear from a number of millennials and a lot of others that say, I went to college thinking that, you know, this four-year degree would get me a job, would be able to uh, provide for me and now what could be a young family, and I still can't do it, that perhaps that we've been sold kind of um, a bill of goods that hasn't really paid off in the present. So in the end... That argument, which will come around again with a vengeance because there's no editor in America that will turn away a journalist who comes with a story that says, uh, you know, here's your degree and here's your mop, uh, mm. that college isn't worth it. Um, and recessions always bring that story on. But the bottom line is, compared to what? And compared to a high school degree, again, with the exception of about 20% of high school graduates, and most of those are male, uh, there really is no alternative. You've got to go on to post-secondary education. Now, mm. we have a post-secondary education system that looks down its nose at labor markets because there's a great fear among colleges that if you pay attention to the ability of students to get jobs and make a living, uh, that somehow or other you're insulting Shakespeare. So I think there is a, uh, if the truth though is in a modern capitalist economy, if you're a college president, and you can't make people eligible or qualified for work or to get jobs and keep, keep jobs, you can't meet any of your other missions. If you graduate people who are uh, supposed to be flourishing and lifelong learners because of their college education, well, they're not going to be uh, flourishing and lifelong learners if they're living under a bridge. Right. So the mission of higher education now has to shift to both uh, promote human flourishing and to get people jobs. And it, it just simply doesn't do that, which is why the majority of people, and this shows up in poll after poll, who graduate with college degrees end up saying they wish they had it to do over again. They go somewhere different and they take a different uh, curriculum, something that had more application in the labor market. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're talking about a reimagining how all of this works uh, and what a degree is worth or, or other ways to achieve that. And, and when you talk about human flourishing, I, I want to hear more about that. I mean, what, what does that mean for you right now? It is true uh, that college education and one must say uniquely American college education does in fact produce human flourishing. I mean, uh, I'm a person who works with numbers, and when I hear high-minded things like that and go check the numbers, I always expect the numbers are going to uh, dis disappoint my uh, illusions. But in this case, it turns out the illusions, uh, the romantic vision of college is true. Uh, it does, in fact, promote human flourishing in a number of respects. So, for example, we know now that the American bachelor's degree, which is unique in the world in that it combines specific education, which has economic value, uh, with uh, general education, all those courses you got to take in order to graduate in English and uh, French and history and so on. It does produce, first of all, higher earnings over a lifetime. And secondly, 
it creates tolerance. And it is in a study we just finished with the other uh, scholars in the European Union, we find that the American college degree is the strongest antidote we have in our society to authoritarianism, which is why Republicans are right. That is, mm. you send American kids to four-year colleges, you're producing Democrats. Do you think that we may see a change, though, in how, in how students decide to apply to colleges? I mean, do you, do you think there may be a shift towards things like trade schools, where there is a more direct application of, of, of school into work? Well, people are on the job here. That is, uh, politicians uh, have been chafing um, with the fact that college is too expensive and their, con their uh, constituents tell them that. Um, and uh, so for a decade now, this has been happening slowly, but it is happening. Uh, we have built out an information system that allows us to find out in very precise terms for every college program in America, not just the institutions, but the programs within them, what the earnings returns will be and how they will affect the prospects for individual students to get a job. So the, uh, the system we have, which is like a huge $500 billion computer uh, with no operating system, the operating system is on the way. Uh, it will be legislated probably at the federal level within the next year or two and at state level, uh, the information systems are already there. Uh, just that they're not used by the colleges. So uh, we're headed for a world where there'll be absolute transparency in the effects of college and the choices that young people make in college. And in some cases, that is where you're really talking about training, where you're talking about college programs that are intended to get you a job. And there are going to be more and more of those, especially after COVID uh, training uh, and education are really the political, the public policy issue of the time, not education. Hmm. Uh, so in those cases where you're talking about training, there will be what are called uh, gainful employment regulations, which is to say, if you go to a training program, God help you, if it's not Trump University, um, you, there will be data that says whether you got a job, uh, how much money you made, whether the price you paid was worth it, and whether or not you got a job in your field of study. We're rapidly coming to a system that runs that way. A lot of higher education doesn't really see it's coming, but it's here. Uh, no more than three months ago, Trump, following on Obama, uh, issued a decree, um, an executive order, I guess we call them, uh, that all colleges would report the social security numbers of their students. Those went to the U.S. Treasury and the Education Department. And we now know uh, for every program, for every college in America, uh, what the uh, first year earnings were for the graduates. So we're about to build a system that will uh, demand a lot more accountability and transparency from higher education especially for the public system, I think. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you have any final thoughts on how we as a society, though, should maybe change the way we feel about the merit of work and about for those that choose not to go to college as employers, as parents, as people that say, maybe we as the consumers in this case need to rethink how we're doing business as well. We are a highly individualistic culture. Uh, and we like to believe since the Puritans that if you're down and out and can't get a job and doing badly, it's your own fault. It's about your character and your talent and your, uh, your ability, your work ethic and so on. We firmly believe that. Now, it's not true. In America, it's a lot better to be rich than smart. If you're one of the, if you're in the top quartile of testing, IQ testing in your, uh, in your youth, in your, say, in the early grades, um, but uh, uh, you come from a family in the bottom quartile of the income distribution, 
the chances that you'll get all the way through school and through a four-year college and into a good job that will pay about 55 grand a year at least by the time you're in your early 30s, about 30%. But if you're a, a kid in America born into a family in the top income quartile, rich kids, let's call them. I don't mean to be offensive, but the shorthand works. But if you're a rich kid, but you get very low test scores, high Q scores and so on in the, your early years, uh, you still have a 70% chance of getting all the way through a four-year college and into a good job. So one of the profound things about this um, is that there is a, a merit myth that we ascribe to without looking very much beneath the surface of things. Uh, when you look beneath the surface of things, you see it really isn't a merit-based society. And when education became the marker that really mattered, it really made this problem much more severe. So what we have to do is to fix our system so they do provide upward mobility. Uh, I think that's coming. It's a political question. Middle-class families uh, are not going to give up their privileges because in the end, uh, if you want to scare the hell out of people uh, on your show, uh, all you got to do is invite some people in and I can give you some names of people who say college isn't worth it anymore. That will scare the heck out of your listeners because they're probably all middle class or upper middle class or aspire to be. Uh, and that's the one story that will scare them because you're, you're telling them that their ability to pass on their middle-class status or to achieve middle-class status for their kids is at risk. So people don't give up privilege without a fight. And I think that the issue here will be how we can use our public system uh, and whether or not there is enough political leverage to begin to use it to create real mobility for uh, younger Americans. Well, Anthony Carnavale of Georgetown University, we really appreciate the time and hope you'll join us again as uh, this seems to be a, an ongoing story um, that could change here, perhaps in the near future. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.